There are lots of things a business needs to help it run efficiently. Document management, printing, IT support, digitization, data security and more. As a true managed service provider, Workflow Solutions can help with these and a wide range of other business needs. Saving time and money for businesses across the UK. Help your workflow with Workflow Solutions, the work from anywhere experts. Visit workflo-solutions.co.uk The Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter. If I was Keir Starmer, I would say, let's discuss, debate honestly about rejoining the EU. And Lord Willie Hockey. Wow. <laughs> well, that's a controversial start to a new season, Tom. <laughs> the Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions. Tom, good morning. Morning, Willie. We changed to the format this week. We're actually recording on Friday, obviously because of the Queen's funeral this weekend. So, Are you, are you on your way down there, Willie? Yes, I am. I'm down there tomorrow with um, Lady Hockey, who um, I will be attending the funeral as her plus one. <laughs> I don't get an invite on my own. Okay. So, yeah, we're heading down tomorrow and... Um, Obviously, you know, it's, it's a big honour to be involved. In, that's quite a thing, in, Willie. And I'm calling it the celebration of the Queen's life. Well, I think that's the way we should look at it, Willie. So yeah. that's that's quite a thing. That's quite an honour. Yes. And Scotland has been shown in a really good light, you know, with the way that all, everyone has went this week from Balmoral to Edinburgh to St Giles. It's been absolutely fantastic. I think watching the coverage, obviously, um, it was on 24 hours on the BBC, but there were some really poignant moments and I think it did show Scotland in its its best light from the coffin cortege leaving Balmoral Gates um, going down the bypasses the tractors all lining up on either side of the road and then coming into Edinburgh and a really a really emotional moment was when the children stood round the coffin in St Giles Cathedral my goodness it that sense of occasion in history really hit me, Willie. Yeah, the vigil was something else and uh, very poignant. And to see that the people were still allowed to pass through the cathedral while they were on guard was amazing. Obviously, you've got the archers in the four corners. Yep. And then, as you say, you had the four siblings, which was which really, as the people there, I think, really appreci appreciated that the pass-through was not stopped while the vigil was going on. I thought that was a real nice moment. Yeah, well, you'll have you'll have met the Queen on a couple of occasions. What kind of sticks in your mind? Um, I've been very fortunate. Yes, probably meet her four or five times. Uh, most of that again through through Susan, but uh, I always found her charming. You know, I had uh, dinner in Buckingham Palace one night with, with many more other people, but we were fortunate enough to be at the table with Princess Anne and we we're talking about her mum and the various things. And and the times that I have met her, very very pleasant, very astute. Kind of yep. knows everything. Uh -huh. I, I think, uh, I'm sure she's briefed be before you meet her, but she kind of takes that briefing to another level. She kind of joins the dots without actually knowing. Um, can tell you a wee funny story, and I'm sure they'll not mind that, just to lighten the mood a bit. But um, when I was fortunate, when I was awarded my OBE, the Queen presented it with me. Uh -huh. And you will know, because you've been through this process yourself, that you're not allowed to say what the Queen said to you. Right. <laughs> so when I came out, all my family said to me, what did the Queen say? <laughs> I said, well, look, I'm going to tell you, but you can't tell anyone. I said, she actually said to me, 
oh, I'm interested that you're a refrigeration engineer. She says, the wee fridge in Balmoral's playing up, do you do homers? <laughs> I don't think my family believe me. Uh, I don't think any of the listeners believe you either, Willie. But, yeah, it's, but it's a wonderful a, woman. It's a nice story. What, what, what struck me, Willie, was because last Sunday was the 21st anniversary of 9-11. Yeah. And I happened to be in Manhattan on 9-11. I think the Queen's power to convene all people of all faiths, regardless of their faith, their colour, their creed, she had the power to bring people together. And I saw a Muslim leader getting interviewed. I think he was in Bradford. And he said at the time of 9-11 there was unjust nervousness about the Muslim community because of flying into the Twin Towers. And listen, lots of Muslims lost their life on that day as well. But he said the Muslim community, which he's a leader of, was nervous because people were unjustly kind of looking at them. He said, but what changed it was the Queen came to visit. Yeah. Now, first of all, to have the wherewithal to say, I see what's happening here, I'm going to make a point yeah. that 99.9999% of Muslims and everybody else, that was an abhorrent act, but she knew the fact that she turned up there and spoke to the Muslim leaders would send a message. And, and I thought that was so powerful, Willie. Fantastic gesture, absolutely fantastic. Tom, you must have met the Queen yourself. Yeah, only in a, only in a couple of occasions. We, we work closer with Prince Charles, now King Charles, obviously at Dumfries House, him coming to my neck of the woods, Willie, and Cumnock and Newcomnock. And, you know, he came and his team said, look, Tom, do you think we could do something at Newcomnock Outdoor Swimming Pool? And I said, oh my goodness, that's that's where I grew that's where I grew up, you know? And it's one of the few outdoor pools and the council were saying, look, this it's fallen into a state of disrepair. But the then Prince Charles, um, through what he was doing at Dumfries House, first of all, looked at Newcomnock, which I'm very grateful for, and I said, well look, that needs to be something that the community wants. So will you check out and I'll check out? And the community said, yes. And it's turned out to be one of the most amazing things. And we now get people from all over Scotland coming to Newcomer Outdoor Pool. Um, I wasn't the main benefactor. That was a family called the Manukian family from London. We helped a wee bit and we helped with the town hall as well. But again, for royalty to think about Newcomnock, Willie, I mean, that's that, that's an amazing thing. But on the couple of occasions that I met the Queen, um, she was with Prince Philip, which was always interesting. Yes. You, never, you never quite knew what was going to happen. And I think over we talking, I think it was the Chelsea Flower Show when I was in the garden centre business and um, I knew nothing about garden and Philip found me out straight away. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, I think she was the one person in the world who had the power to convene everyone else. And I don't think there's another person in the whole world, not an American president, not, no one else in the world could bring people together. And I think 
it's true that the Queen wanted to be in Scotland in her last days. It's absolutely, you know, there's no doubt about that whatsoever. And again, just saying that I think that Scotland has done her proud and the people of Scotland have done her proud. So absolutely delighted that we have played our part in the celebration of the Queen's life. Absolutely. Tom, moving on to business. Obviously, we discussed it in the past about, you know, the, 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 the pressure that's on government with lack of funds. And we've heard this week from John Swinney in relation to the 500 million that they've got to find for new pay settlements and what have you. Obviously, this is going to put a major strain on local authorities uh, and the services that they provide. As business people, have we got any answers at all as to how we can get any ideas into the government about how they can get more revenues? Yeah, well, if I think of government like a business, Every business, every listener out there this morning is running a business, is looking at their budget and going, right, what can I do here to get through the challenges that are ahead of me? In business, we can be quite ruthless on cost. We can be ruthless on things that are not working. And I think government have, have got to look at it because they still have a huge budget, Willie. I have been kind of saying to them that they've got an allocation problem. The budget is still big. It's smaller than it was, but it's still in the billions. And they've got to say, where do we allocate and do we get a return for that allocation? Just like any business. And I would say there's quite a lot could be done to cut out the inefficiencies and to cut out the things that are not working and not working for the people that they're supposed to be helping. A case in point where the Hunter Foundation has been working was with um, kids, kids in care. When I looked at it, and I didn't know anything about it at the time, I, I first of all said, right, what's the budget? And the budget was huge, Willie, which showed we had a heart. But the outcomes for the young people in care were terrible. And therefore that showed there must be a better way of using that money. And I, I would really encourage government and I would encourage business to sit alongside government because I think they need a bit of help here to allocate the funds better and to actually say, are the people we're trying to help getting value for money? So what you're basically saying, Tom, is, you know, using American phrases, we don't think we're getting best bang for our buck in some of our public spending. No, we're not, Willie. I would say rather than moan about that, I'm... I'm never one just to moan and then not offer up a solution. I would say people like you, people like myself, are willing to give our time and effort to try and help in these circumstances with help with getting better organised, with help with helping local authorities along the way to be more efficient on how they allocate this capital. That's it. People are certainly going to have to think out the box because we're going to have to find ways of how we can spread the budgets that we do have, as you say, to get the best outcomes. So, Willie, one of the things that you and I have worry about all the time is unemployment because, you know, the Hunter Foundation say the best social policy ever written is a decent paid job. But it has been quite strange to you and I and I, I read in the Financial Times this week that the UK unemployment rate is at, is at its lowest rate since 1974, 3.6%. 
but, and there's always a but, isn't there, with statistics, um, there's a shrinking workforce, a shrinking workforce, and it's called economic inactivity. I'd never heard of this phrase until I read it this week. And that basically means who, who's available to work. And that's shrinking because people are choosing to study longer. People are ill. People are just deciding to leave the workforce, Willie. Therefore, a shrinking workforce means that there's still inflationary pressures on jobs and wages because there are less people available to work. What Have you got any insight into that, Willie? I've been saying for many, many months, the one thing that did not stack up for me was the unemployment number and how it was so low. As you say, you know, it's around at 3.6, 3.7%. I'd like to go back, probably in the last 10 years, the, the, the Tory government has proclaimed the wonderful work they've done in getting an extra million people into work, right? I don't think they did, right? Because no one can tell you where these million jobs came from. I think what happened was with the introduction of zero hours contract, what the Tories done in one full swoop was kill the black market for right. employment. Okay. So nobody's getting paid in pound notes anymore. <laughs> so all the gangs of uh, builders you would see standing in street corners getting picked up in lorries away. So you're homers, Willie. Homer, no homers. I don't think. <laughs> I think that that was the end of the black market for for work. So that. That is one. It, it wasn't that we created another million jobs, right? We may have created 100,000 jobs, but we certainly didn't create a million. But in the recent numbers and the recent figures falling on from Brexit and obviously the, the cost of living crisis that we're having at the moment, I think that these numbers somehow are being masked, right? That, uh, there's no way that I believe there's only 3.7% of the population unemployed. And sadly, Tom, I think in the next few months we are going to see a major correction, right? I've never, I've never, in all my time in business, seen people so nervous about their jobs, about what's happening, and I think that there's a chance in the next six months that the unemployment number could be double what it is at the moment, and that's sad. So let me ask you this, Willie. We've talked about the ineptitude of Andrew Bailey at the Bank of England. So there's another interest rate discussion coming up in September. Yeah. What do you think he's going to do? Well, to be honest, what I will say, he'll definitely be behind the curve, so he'll be consistent. Whatever he does, I mean, I've seen this week that the you know the, the ECB, the rate went up by three quarters of a percent, yep. right, which is huge, huge. Uh, so I think that... I'm hoping that Andrew Bailey surprises me and he's ahead of the game because all he said last week during all the sad times that were, that we're going through at the moment that he found the opportune moment. It looked as if he was looking for a good day to put out bad news when he actually said, there is no doubt now it is inevitable that we'll be in a recession. Right, and if right. that's the best that he can come up with rather than having ideas about how we get out of it, I think at the moment the pressures on the economy at the moment, we, we've said it, we need really clever people, right? And it's just a shame that we don't have people like Richie Sunak and people like him, you know, who have got an idea. I really, really worry 
about Liz Truss and the team that she's put together about what fiscal policy will look like and I can't wait to hear what Andrew Bailey's got to say. Yeah, I guess I'm a bit more optimistic than you are. I think we've got to give Liz Truss quasi quarting a chance and we actually need them to succeed. I think I said this last week, Willie. Inflation hit 10.1% in July and is it inevitable that through the monetary policy, by pushing interest rates up, that they're looking to slow down the economy and unemployment is a consequence of that, Willie. Is this how it works? The problem that we have at the moment is that we have all the ingredients in the economy for the perfect storm, okay? And I think we touched on it in the past. The problem that we had is that inflation being so low for nearly two decades... It was crazy that we didn't move people's salaries up a wee bit more than just inflation. And this was created the problem. So a time when you've got an economic crisis, the one thing you don't need is everyone in the public sector to be looking for more pay, right? That's not to say they're not entitled to it, but that's that doesn't that goes against what they would normally do. Okay. Normally when you hit in recession, people's salaries stagnate. Right, and at the moment we've got people probably quite rightly looking to be paid more than they're getting paid at the moment. So for us, I actually don't know where the aces are for list trust and and the the treasury. What cards they can actually play, I have no idea. No, it is an unprecedented time. I know that word's used a lot, but um, I think we are facing these unprecedented times. Stuart, good morning and welcome back to the show. Thanks, Willie. Um, it's good to be back after what has been a long, hard summer for so many of the city's businesses. Right now, as you might expect, Chambers' thoughts are with the royal family during this sad moment in our national history. Her Majesty the Queen had been patron to the British Chambers of Commerce for over 70 years and had shown her support to business through initiatives like the Queen's Award for Enterprise, which started back in 1965. Over 6,000 companies have since been recognised for success under themes including international trade and innovation. So for us right now, this is a profoundly sad moment. Turning to business, um, back in early June, the big concern from Chamber members was the growing backlog of unfilled vacancies. Finding talent in just about any sector, including hospitality, tourism, construction, digital technology and shipbuilding was and remains difficult and wage inflation was indeed becoming a worrying issue. Now that the summer nears its end, it is, of course, energy bills that are already crucifying businesses with a stream of reports of annual energy costs at least trebling, if a a quote can be found at all. Uh, The Chambers of Commerce and many other business organisations have been constantly lobbying both Scottish and UK governments for action. Our basic message to government had been that businesses and especially SMEs needed to be included in the response and that that response had to be substantial. No Business can long sustain the scale of energy bills they're now being asked to cover and we had felt proposals like those by Scottish Power were worthwhile considering. We will, through the British Chambers of Commerce, be paying very close attention to the detail of the new Trust Administration's energy costs announcement. We don't yet know exactly how the six-month support to businesses will work in practice, nor how the targeting of vulnerable sectors for longer-term support will be decided. So there's much more yet to be done. 
Glasgow City Centre, recovery there, also at risk from this. Our footfall data shows City Centre life remains roughly at 80% of pre-COVID levels, which means we're still missing around 800,000 pairs of feet each month. We know these feet are mostly office workers, since the weekends and the evenings are back to near pre-COVID levels. Weekdays are still only just over 70%. There have been no signs that major employers are changing their hybrid working policies, so there's no guarantee that we'll see many more office workers in the city over the winter. More positively, though, credit card data from analysts Beauclair shows that city centre spending is now 20% higher than it was before COVID. It's food and drink that's leading the way. Our restaurants, bars and clubs now play a much more important role in a city centre that's much more about socialising than ever. But these are often the businesses facing some of the most extreme increases in their energy bills and amongst the most worried that spending will drop as inflation begins to eat away at household budgets. So they will all be be keenly watching how the UK government delivers on its promise. We're also awaiting a decision on Scotland's two green freeports, and the Chamber's a vigorous supporter of the Clyde Green Freeport bid that will bring 30,000 jobs to the Glasgow City region and help encourage investment all along the river from Inverclyde through to Moss End in Lanarkshire. And finally, the Chamber's own Glasgow Business Awards will be held on October the 6th. There may be powerful economic headwinds, but there's a great deal still to celebrate in Glasgow companies' success. Stuart, thank you for that update and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you in the show in the next coming months. Thanks very much, Stuart. Tom, you mentioned the Kilt Walk. I mean, yes. What a fantastic, you know, this is a great initiative that you've been involved in for many years. What's happening? What's the latest? Yeah, so we were worried that perhaps the Kilt Walk wouldn't be allowed to take place in Edinburgh because of um, the Queen's sad passing. But um, I think we've made the right decision. I think... I actually think there's going to be over 800 different Scottish charities benefit um, by people walking the Kilt Walk in Edinburgh this Sunday, um, today when this show goes out. And therefore, I think the Queen would have been happy for it to go ahead because she was all about charity. She was all about people helping themselves to help others. And therefore, we will walk on Sunday in the kilt walk, but with one eye on what's happening down south. I'm sure everyone participating in the kilt walk will be there and this will be in memory of a celebration of the Queen's life. Coming next, Hunter and Hockey chat to Jane Werwand, co-founder and chief visionary of Dermalogica and the International Dermal Institute. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions, helping you with a wide range of business needs. Go there are lots of things a business needs to help it run efficiently. Document management, printing, IT support, digitization, data security and more. As a true managed service provider, Workflow Solutions can help with these and a wide range of other business needs. Saving time and money for businesses across the UK. Help your workflow with Workflow Solutions, the work from anywhere experts. Visit workflo-solutions.co.uk. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. This week's special guest is Jane Werwand, co-founder and chief visionary of Dermalogica and the International Dermal Institute, game-changing brands that revolutionise the professional skincare industry. Hi, Jane. Hey. Me, Tarzan. Really I was dying to say that. 
Well, that's the worst joke ever. Come on. Yeah, that's that's like the first time I've ever heard. Yeah, I'm sorry, Jane. I'm sorry. Jane, he's been he's been waiting three hours to say that. It's yeah. terrible. It's terrible. Jane, I'll start again. Good morning and welcome to the Hunter and Hockey Business Show. We're absolutely delighted to have you on. Thank you. I'm very happy to be with you. So yeah. thanks very much. It's great to meet you, Jane. I, I am I, I am excited not because of Willie's quit, but. Your backstory is something, one, I didn't know anything about, and two, I can't wait for the listeners to hear all about it. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, yeah, listen, we've all got a backstory, right? There's always a something, especially if you're an entrepreneur. Yes. I mean, like I, I, that part of our backstory, that kind of place where we came from, I find is typically the exact seed that was planted that took you to wherever it was you were going to go because you wanted to make a change about something or, you know, do something that uh, kind of broke the mould. So that was my story too. So common entrepreneurial story. So Jane, can I ask you, it's something I, I'm really fascinated when I get to speak to fellow entrepreneurs. What, what do you think about nature or nurture? Was there something in your background growing up that was kind of marking you out or the the upbringing you had or key people in your in your upbringing what marked you out Jane so I was born in Edinburgh um my dad was a Scot from Gorgie and grew up the youngest of four girls and grew up in Westfield Court just outside Gorgie and my mum and dad uh, had raised us all in Edinburgh and at age 50 over the course of a three days, my dad suddenly had a heart attack and then a stroke and died oh, in 1961. I know. Left my mum with four girls. She was a trained nurse, although she hadn't worked since she got married. Because those days, if you were a married woman, you had to give up your job to a single woman because it was assumed once you were married, you no longer needed to earn your own money. Yeah. That's a whole other radio show. <laughs> <That's> me, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, anyway, my mum went back to work at the Western General um, and she worked nights. She cobbled together a patchwork quilt of care. But the one thing she drummed into all of us was learn how to do something. Don't just know something. Don't just learn something. Learn how to do something. Because if she said to us girls, if any of you are ever left the way I was, you better have a training to fall back on. And that stuck in our brains. Advice, yeah. when, I was, when I was nine years old, my mum moved uh, us to England because her father, who was in the south of England, had taken sick with Parkinson's and she wanted to nurse him in his last year, which she did. So we moved to England. I'm nine. And uh, at 13, I got my first job working Saturdays in a salon. And we all had to get jobs because there was no extra money to go around. And I wanted to go to the pictures and I wanted to do things. And at 13, I tried a paper round, but I was bloody awful at it. So anyway, <laughs> I got a job in the salon doing the laundry. Oh. And they couldn't, yeah, they couldn't employ me legally because I couldn't be seen at 13 working in the back of a salon. So I couldn't be graduated to doing shampoos. But when I was 15 and a half, I got promoted to Shampoo Girl, which was fantastic because I got tips. <laughs> and I was in the industry and I realized this is what I love to do. I love being in this industry. It has nothing to do with beauty. It has everything to do with connection and community and did my apprenticeship. I'm a huge advocate for apprenticeships because you can really kind of, well, you know, screw up. Yep. And, 
Screw up and someone will help you. (laughs) (laughs) I then emigrated to South Africa, as you did in the 70s. You went somewhere, and especially if you're Scots, we love to travel. We love to get out there, have an adventure. I lived there for four years and then emigrated to America, thinking there'd be tons of salons where I could work. When I got here, that wasn't the case. And the professional skincare industry and salons, what we now think of as spas, did not exist. And I was in Los Angeles and I realized there's a huge gap. So I realized there was an education gap and that's why the industry hadn't kind of taken off in this country. So I was trained as a teacher in skincare and I opened a very small school, um, thousand square feet and started doing training. And that was the start of everything. Trained wow. people for three years. They loved what they were learning. I was teaching them waxing and, and reflexology and aromatherapy, all the things I'd learned. And uh, in 1986, we launched a product line, Dermalogica. And Dermalogica is now the number one professional salon product in the world. And it was all bootstrapped what, up on $14,000 of self-funding. What a brilliant story, Jane. What a story. Yeah, so, thank you. So why, what, what takes you from training to product? How did you make that jump? Well, to begin with, I, we weren't thinking of a product. and There was nothing in the salon industry. There was in, in, in chemists, there was in department stores, there was Avon, but there was nothing in salon. And so... We realized, Raymond, my husband, who we started the business together, we're, we're together in everything. I mean, it's actually ridiculous. We spend right. everything <laughs> together. And, How you uh, feel? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good though, isn't it? If it's good, it's good. So yeah. he said, he's a brilliant marketer. And he said to me, listen, the gap surely is product. I mean, you, so I said, well, I, me? Yeah, probably. Yes. Yes, it is. And he, it was sort of like opportunity shows itself, right? So we realized, oh my gosh, we need a product because actually without the right product, all these techniques I'm teaching can't be done because I was teaching advanced techniques with electrical equipment and you needed a specific sort of water-soluble solution. So we introduced so we had 27 products in one shot, all our own formulas that we worked with a chemist to develop. I mean, I didn't, you really can't do that, just to tell everybody. Yeah. To do 27 <laughs> formulas in nine months is ridiculous. We can't get one out in two years right now. So yeah. it's, we did it because we didn't know that we couldn't. That you couldn't. That's a very good thought. Now, can I ask you a question? Yeah. If you'd stayed in Scotland, yeah. do you think you would have launched Dermalogica? No. 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 So why not? No, and well, the reason is I think I feel pretty strongly I wouldn't have okay. because coming to America, not just coming to America, working in salons and seeing that there was the opportunity to open your own business. This is the cool thing about my industry. You do your apprenticeship, you do your training, and then you realize not only does this industry, the salon industry, whether you're a hairdresser, whether you're a nail technician, whether you're a skin therapist, not only does this employ more women and people of diversity than any other industry, it also allows you 
uh, equips you to open your own business. I didn't know the word entrepreneur. I just knew you could open your own place. Right. <laughs> so that was sparked to me in, in when I was working in England. Ben, it was then amplified when I worked in South Africa. At all the time I was working for owner-operators. Yeah. And again, when I came to the States, entrepreneurship, especially in California in the 80s, you know, Silicon Valley was just beginning. This idea of entrepreneurship was absolutely in the air. It was everywhere. Everyone was talking about it. I don't know if I'd stayed in Scotland, if I would at the age of 24, thought I can do this. I think, I think I would have perhaps seen I could open my own business. And I think I probably would have. And owning a salon in Edinburgh or Glasgow would have been fantastic. I mean, that would have been great. I would have been super happy and very proud of myself because I would be owning my own business. But there was the idea of scale when I came to the States of this is an enormous country, lots of immigrants, and everybody is going for it. And it was, I think it was like my Scottish spirit and sense of adventure met the right environment that said, go on, go for it. You can do it. So... Because, Jane, just to let you know, what what Willie and I are trying to do in Scotland is get that spirit so that someone like you would would not be daunted and would just do it in Scotland and not have to go to America. That's what we're really trying to do. But anyway. Yes. Anyway. I know 100%. We need our local businesses. We need entrepreneurs to open small businesses, local businesses. There is no, I mean, there was nothing extraordinary about me. It was not an exceptional story. I didn't go to, you know, Oxford. I didn't go to university. I don't have like a PhD in something incredible that allowed me to do something completely different. I'm a skin therapist. I worked in salons. However, you just need that belief in yourself. And and my goodness, if it doesn't happen in Scotland, where the hell is it going to happen? Because that's all it's in our dna right we're warriors we're vikings we are we come from a long line of people that were fiercely independent so jane on that obviously we're really interested uh, after you brought up a successful business an amazing business um Uh that you then decided that you were going to try and help other people in local communities and you set up found yeah. And so could you tell us a bit about how, how, what made you think this is what I want you to do now after being a successful entrepreneur, you want to help entrepreneurs? Well, all the way through Dermalogica's growth, our success was based on the local salon. We didn't grow by selling to department stores and the big businesses because they would have wanted credit. They would have wanted to pay us in 120 days. They w- and they probably would have wanted consignment product. And we couldn't have carried that kind of debt. We needed we needed cash flow. Cash flow, yeah. So we we sold to small businesses on a COD basis. Everything was COD. We delivered UPS. The UPS guy delivered the product, picked up the check and brought it back. Wow. It was super <laughs> efficient. It was very simple, super efficient. How did you learn about cash flow, Jane? Because I, I, it's something we coach all the time to our fellow entrepreneurs, cash flow. Yeah. How did you How did you learn about it? Well, I learned about it really simply because the salon industry typically has horrible credit ratings. Oh, I see. So 
no one had no one was working on credit salons are still typically cod wow so therefore at least in the states i mean now we take credit of course we we deal with the big companies we deal we're in selfridges we're in big salons big spas however then we couldn't have handled it we couldn't have managed it it would have taken us under right so therefore when we we were cash positive, we were able to reinvest everything in the business and we we grew it up. We owned the business. When we took it to acquisition, which is in 2015, after 30 years, we were complete, we were highly profitable. We had no debt, zero debt. Wow. And Raymond and I owned it 100%. Fantastic. We'd never given equity. I know that that was... That's unique. Good for you. Yeah, that was, thank you. That was all due to our industry and it was all due to us being frugal. <laughs> <laughs> being Scottish. Being Edinburgh. Exactly. You'll have had your tea. You'll have <laughs> So again, fantastic story. Tell us more about the organisation you set up called Found to help local entrepreneurs get a start. It was the salons that took us to the party. It was the small businesses that made Dermalogica's success possible and still do the independent entrepreneurs. Those small businesses did and still do. They're the basis of foundation of success. So we knew the impact of a small business and the impact it had on the community and hiring locally. So when we went to acquisition, we sold Dermalogica in 2015. And I'm still involved with Dermalogica very, very much so. But we sold the business. We owned it 100%. We were highly profitable. Ray and I owned, owned everything. We'd never given away equity. Wow. So it was a very, it was six months of due diligence. It was a quick acquisition. And we realized now we set up a foundation, a, a nonprofit called the Whirlwind Foundation. And our key initiative is called Found. And Found is all about funding, supporting, coaching, and connecting small businesses, local entrepreneurs. So found, uh, and you can check us at www.found.org. And um, you will see when you go to found or found LA, because we're based in Los Angeles, um, you'll see how we work in the blueprint. And it's that blueprint is, uh, is open for anyone who wants to do the same thing and give back to the local community. Take our blueprint. It's free. We'll help you. We'll tell you how we did it here in Los Angeles and, uh, and how we're continuing to kind of spread that, that idea. And now we've funded, coached, mentored 16,000 uh, entrepreneurs, small businesses so far in 16, Los Angeles. 000. Wow. Uh-huh. And our goal Amazing. is twenty. 25,000 by 2025, and we're going to hit it. And I know all the underserved communities, we focus on women, immigrants, and underserved communities that aren't getting funding. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you that the least amount of funding, less than 4% of all available funding goes to women and less than 1% to women of color. Wow. Women start businesses at nine times the rate of men. And every study shows those businesses are successful. Now, why don't we see more of them? Because less than 10% ever get to a million dollars or a million pounds. And less than 1% will hit 10 million. Why? They don't get funding. They don't get funding for growth. So they stay small. The biggest sleeping giant in entrepreneurship is funding women and women specifically of color. Brilliant. Jane Canassi, did I hear you right there? Did you say that nine times the amount of yes. women start businesses than men? 
Yes, that's the last two years, especially during COVID. And especially now, we've seen a huge jump because so many women are refiguring how they generate income because they cannot, we can't, it's impossible to manage childcare, a full time job, pay for childcare if you have a full time job. It's a conundrum. So many women are saying, you know what, I don't need to do this. I can figure this out on my own and I'm going to start my own business. But if they don't get funded for their growth, they're going to stay as only employing themselves. That's fascinating. I think we, we're delighted in Scotland now we're getting up to 50-50 or maybe just yes. there's more women now. Yeah. We've certainly seen that with some of the organisations that we've been helping over the years, but that's to, to, to hear those numbers is, is incredible. So we would yeah. we would love to learn from you, Jen, to, to see if there's something we could do here in Scotland because yes. Wally and I are, are all about encouraging the next generation of entrepreneurs and yeah. um it sounds as if you've you've got some real hands-on experience there which we could learn from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would love that. Ready to share anything. Really? We're just about to do a data report on the stats, the statistics that we have here in Southern California, which of course are very different. It's, everything is different. But the plumbing, the plumbing may be different, but the message is the same. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's, you know, it's, it's the same challenges, funding, coaching, education, and even more importantly, I think, than some of those, connection, connecting our entrepreneurs to each other in a yeah. properly formed network. Because we not only do we learn from each other, we process our information and access our, our learning from best practices. So across those 16,000 businesses that you've helped, mm-hmm. do you make sure that networking is, is a big, big part of connecting Critical. Them? Yep. Critical. And they say it's the most important thing because from each other they can say, so how much, you know, for example, they might say, so how much commission do you pay your salespeople? Do you pay your person at the front desk? Do you pay your person in the warehouse? What I mean, how do you do any kind of bonus sharing? It could be anything from how much do you pay per hour? How, you know, do you give any, you know, sort of bonuses at the end of year? Tiny, small things, which, how do you know this stuff if you don't learn it the hard way yourself by doing it and making mistakes, which is okay. But if you've got someone that can turn around and say, well, I've got a business four miles away from you and I can tell you exactly what the council taxes are and everything else. These are amazing best practices that we can learn and get everyone up and elevated fast. Jean, can I ask you, um, a lot of these businesses, are they in the skincare game or are you across many sectors? Oh, no, we're, ev- we're every sector. Every, every sector, yeah. Yeah, restaurants, food service, uh, yes, salons, um, retail, everything from taco stands, which I don't know if you know what a taco is, it's a Mexican yeah, yeah. Yes. food. Yes. <laughs> taco yes. stands yes. on the streets of LA, the street uh, vendors. Unfortunately, we, we know what tacos are. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So everything from taco stands to health food stores to retail clothing stores, And we focus on underserved communities. In Los Angeles, it's areas like Compton, South Central LA, uh, the West Adams. It's areas that are gritty and they need regeneration because many of them are deserts for fresh food and flowers and uh, preschools and everything else. And we want to be in there and we want entrepreneurs to make the difference. So, so Jane, it sounds very similar to what we're trying to do here with Scale Up Scotland. Um, Mm -hmm. The absolute core and the secret sauce, as I call it, is the peer-to-peer support and learning. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, starting and growing your own business can be a lonely thing. And therefore, trying to put like-minded people together 
and just seeing yeah. the support, the encouragement, the little nuggets, as you're saying, that they're sharing. So yeah. I, I will I will send you this um, once we're off air and um, we're always looking for people to come and coach and tell the story. And your your story is amazing. Can I just Thank take you. Can, I, can I take you back a second to 2015 when it came to selling the business? How did you... Yep. How did you choose who was going to be allowed to buy it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what 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 was the emotional roller coaster like? The hardest decision I think that Raymond and I have ever made in our lives, uh, even harder than deciding to get married, because that wasn't that was that was actually an easy one for us. <laughs> but, um, the hardest decision was: uh, Are we going to sell? You know. People told us to go to an IPO, right? So go public. Yeah. We, we were big enough and we could have done it. But here's the deal. We don't play well in the sandbox, Raymond and I. And I don't want to report to any one person, let alone a bunch of shareholders. It just wasn't for us. <laughs> we knew it wasn't. That's not our personality. Yep. The second thing would have been, do we need to bring in a partner? And the answer was no, because we were highly profitable. We didn't need a partner. We needed someone to, we were we were aging up. I was in my fifties. Ray was in his sixties. I'm now sixty four. He's seventy three. So we, you know, we didn't want to be doing it when we were ninety. We knew that digitalization was coming in. Everything, you know, we needed a bit a refresh. It was time to hand the baton over to the second runner. Right. It, we have two daughters, so you would think that perhaps we would hand over to our kids. No, because Raymond and I really believe strongly that when a child comes into the business, it's very hard for them to shine on their own spotlight. If the parents started it or the family started it, there can be this feeling like, well, they're only in that position because of their family. And we didn't want that as our legacy for them. So we decided we're going to sell. We then started looking for people that would be the what we called, they were the likely suspects, the likely buyers. We didn't ever do a book. We didn't, uh, we handled it like an entrepreneur. We didn't do anything that was usual. We we looked for the people that we knew would want Dermalogica and we put the word out quietly that we were perhaps looking. Right. And we didn't sell to any of the people that people thought we would, the big cosmetic companies. We sold to Unilever. Uh-huh. And the reason we did was the value system. The value system, and it also didn't hurt, by the way, that the person that uh, came to negotiate the the sale was uh, was Scottish, was (laughs) Alan Jope, who's now the CEO of Unilever. I know Alan, actually, yeah. He's a good guy. Okay, so that that didn't hurt. And you know Alan, he's a great guy, down-to-earth guy, roll his sleeves up, let's get busy, let's get working, let's make this happen. Yeah. And and that was, it was just so our value system it wasn't about the the big dinner and the whining and dining it was all about how can we make a difference how can we expand this but not just expanding sales how do we expand the impact that the products made in in the world and in the industry and i i loved that i loved what uh, what they were doing i'm still involved because of that value system right. and i have to say it's been an, an incredible i think of it as a partnership um it's been incredible and uh, the value system holds true and so it was it was really great all the way through to the end and Jane. i and i detail it in in my book right so right. jane let me tell you a story mm-hmm. um knowing that we're going to be interviewing you this morning mm-hmm. Uh, I was in my niece's house last night and there was eight ladies in the kitchen. Uh, 
Yeah. And I asked them had they ever heard of Demologica and I could not believe the reaction. Right. Everyone in the room not only knew about it, were raving about it. Everybody buys this for someone's birthday. Aww. I couldn't I couldn't believe it. And they also told me, this is interesting, our studio is in the heart of Glasgow in a place called the Gorbals. Yes. And he told me about two shops that were near here, a shop called Keltro and a shop called Glow that were a way back at the start of your product yes. and you had it everywhere. So there you go. <laughs> yes. So if that's the reaction worldwide, no wonder Unilever butt your hand off to buy the business. <laughs> <laughs> and our flagship, our flagship store in Scotland is in, just opened about two months ago in Glasgow. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, yeah, on, yeah, on Buchanan Street. Fantastic. So, Fantastic. so, yeah. so Jane, give your, give your book a plug as well skin in the game <laughs> thank you. on you go come on it's thank you it's called skin in the game um and it is basically everything you you need is already inside you whether it's nature or nurture you've got it inside you to make the difference you want to make in the world and i talk about my story but more importantly i talk about the lessons i learned and how it helped me build the business and and, and build my life and uh, all profits all proceeds from the book sale go to found our nonprofit yeah. and uh, and it's been doing great and i'm i'm very proud of it that's sort of my full stop at the end of my sentence and I appreciate you allowing me to talk about it thank you Jane thank you so much it's been a pleasure having you on and they will thank look you. forward we will definitely be more interested yeah. in found now and I'm no doubt Please. that Tom will be getting in touch shortly good don't <laughs> thank you, you. Good. don't you worry I'll let's, be stalking you now and sending you lots please, of information let's Let's keep in touch. And there's no reason now with all technology, there's no reason that we can't link entrepreneurs from one side of the Atlantic to the other. Now you're and talking. And they can learn from each other. Well, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's been brilliant this morning, Jane. Thank you so much for coming on Thanks. the Go Radio Business Show. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Coming next on Hunter and Hockey, the boards you can't afford. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions, providing secure archive storage to your business there are lots of things a business needs to help it run efficiently document management printing IT support digitization data security and more as a true managed service provider workflow solutions can help with these and a wide range of other business needs saving time and money for businesses across the UK Help your workflow with Workflow Solutions, the work-from-anywhere experts. Visit workflo-solutions.co.uk The board you can't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. This morning we have Darren Nicholl from Nudge Exchange. Darren, good morning. Good morning, how are you? I'm fine, I'm fine. Um, and Sir Tom Hunter is sitting beside me here. You've got, you're on now to the board you can't afford. Well then, Darren, how are you doing? I'm good, Tom. Are yourself? Oh, champion, champion. And we're, we're looking forward to your question. What are you going to ask us this morning, Darren? So uh, both of you are very successful in, in business, but what really comes across in your radio show is that you're also very aware that that responsibility brings, um, you know, a greater part to play in the bigger picture and to give back to society. Yes, what do you guys think of the B Corp movement where businesses adopt a hybrid model of giving rather than just making and redistributing 
Is this a model that you can see working? And would you ever consider adopting the accreditation? Yeah, well, um, Darren, that's a great question because I don't think there's too much talked about B Corps in, in, in Scotland. I know a little bit about it, but but not too much. What I know about it is I would say that any successful business should be adopting these principles anyway. And a lot of people come and ask me, oh, right, should I, should I be doing this business to help in a charity way? And to start with, my answer was always, look, keep business and giving back separate because in order to make the money, you've got to be singular focus and you've got to really get stuck into your business. And then if you want to do something with the money to give back, then that would be fine. But I've been educated over the years and, you know, we believe in the Hunter Foundation, the best social policy ever written is a decent job, decent paid job. And therefore, if a B Corp can create these jobs and treat people properly, that's what normal businesses should be doing. But if you've got a set of principles there, then yeah, let's 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 explore it. What do you think, Willie? Do you, do, do you know much about it? I don't know that much. To be honest with you, I don't know a lot about it. I've heard about it, probably hearing more about it this morning than I ever knew. But, Darren, yes, we, we, we've obviously, all our working life's been encouraged to try and help other people in business. And later on in life now, as we've kind of, we're getting to the end of our cycle, that we're trying to encourage <laughs> oh, it more I hope and not, more. Willie. Come on. Tom, that was, a news, <laughs> that was a news flash for you. I, I think that... Um, it's a good idea. I think it probably works better with smaller, medium-sized businesses than it does with large businesses. But it's something, certainly, that I would encourage. The more that you can get the people who work for you more involved uh, in your business and they believe that you care about them more than you just pay them at the end of the month, I think it's only a good thing for anybody's business. And it's something I would certainly encourage. At City, we've been doing a few initiatives. I've mentioned them in the past, like, you know, that that we try and care for everybody. And I'd like to think that everybody that works for us knows that if they have a problem, there is a route for them to come and tell us. And if we can help them, we will certainly do that. Yeah. Um, Darren, what do you think about it? Are, are you involved in, in the in the B Corp movement? Uh, yes, uh, very much so. We went B Corp at the start of uh, this year after a 12-month a process and... Um, I think you hit the nail on the head, Tom, when you mentioned that um, you should be considering most of what's in the accreditation anyway. Um, you know, there's two or three big hitting items about being employee-owned and, uh, you know, your commitments to the environment, but everything else is just good business practice about how you treat your staff, etc. So we thought it was just a great framework to put around uh, our business. But um, I guess... Uh, where the challenges sometimes come at, comes in is the, you know, it, a, a certain amount of these elements come with a cost. You know, if you're going to be a carbon neutral business, um, it comes with a cost about potentially offsetting, etc. Yeah. Uh, and I just wondered if, you know, in the back of my head, does this put my business at a disadvantage when, when we're out there competing? So, um, Darren, can I ask you? Sorry, can can you tell us a wee bit about your business and how many people you have working for you? Yeah, we're just uh, we're a startup. We've got uh, five people on the team. We've been on the go for about two years, and um, we're an online platform for connecting STEM professionals with their the next uh, job or project. I see, fantastic. I see. Listen, Darren, will you keep in touch with us? 
Let us know how you're getting on. Thanks so much for your call this morning to the Go Radio Business Show, and we wish you every success. Yes, here, here. Good luck. Good luck, Dan. Appreciate it. Listen to Hunter and Hockey anywhere, anytime, wherever you get your podcasts. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions. Helping your business with document management, print, and IT solutions. Go.